We don't have to look at pleasure as this monumental task or a complete rewrite of our lives. Sustained pleasure practices are really small. They're granular and they bring us pleasure and joy and something to look forward to even in the moments of working hard. Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast. Let's get intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and I'm here to bring you content, conversations, insights, perspectives, and lessons learned that will bring you closer to a deeper appreciation for and relationship with yourself. I'm here to bring you conversations about sexuality, self-awareness, self-development, relationships, intimacy, exploration that will guide you on your journey to deeper self-understanding. Our close relationships account for 70% of our happiness and 90% of our well-being. So better relationships really does mean a better life. I'm so happy to have you here with me. And as always, I'm right here next to you along for the ride on this wild, crazy, beautiful journey. Dr. Kate Balistrieri is a sex-positive therapist focused on helping people heal from trauma, recover from addiction, improve their relationships, establish healthy boundaries, build effective communication strategies, and improve their sex life. She's also the founder of the platform Modern Intimacy, which provides an inclusive space for people to get access to education about important but stigmatized topics that many of us live with every day. Hello. Nice to have you back on the show. It's so great to be back. I was just looking through for people tuning in. We did a previous interview, which is called The Complexity of Simplicity. We talked about a lot of different things, but overall, this idea of seemingly simple things, some of which you know we'll be talking about today, a lot about pleasure and presence, but how they can be so complex and there are so many things standing in the way keeping us from them but with the right mindset with the right information knowledge empowerment how we can kind of reclaim those processes those feelings access to those states of being and kind of bring back the simplicity behind it in a way that can be extremely transformational for ourselves, our relationships, our quality of life. So excited to have you back. And before we dive into talking about pleasure and presence today, I would love to have you reintroduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about the work you do and what has inspired you to be doing that work. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for inviting me to come back on your show. It's good to be here. My name is Dr. Kate Balistrieri, and I'm a licensed psychologist, a certified sex therapist, certified sex addiction therapist, and a PACT trained couples therapist. And I'm also the founder of Modern Intimacy, which is a group psychotherapy practice here in the U.S., I really got started in this work a long time ago, almost 20 years ago. And when I originally started in the field, my focus was primarily in forensic psychology, which means anything and anywhere where the field of psychology and the field of the legal system intersect. And my work specifically focused around the evaluation and treatment of convicted sex offenders at the time. So I spent a lot of my day and a lot of my study, a lot of my research really understanding, first of all, what compelled people to do such horrific things to other human beings, but also what the process of rehabilitation and recovery looked like for perpetrators and 
also, and perhaps even more importantly, for survivors, the absence of an understanding of pleasure that I saw so thematically as a part of the justification for these kinds of egregious behaviors. And a lot of misinformation and disinformation or a lack of information about sexuality and bodily autonomy that really was an underlying foundational aspect of why some of the perpetrators that I worked with did the things that they did. And so that work to me was so valuable. And the process of rehabilitation is very long and arduous and in some cases possible and in some cases not very possible. But what I found was that for a lot of the folks who did show behavior modification, there was a plateau in their recovery and in their ability to sustain their changed behavior because the treatment kind of stopped around containing inappropriate behavior. That's an absolutely essential element of that program. But there wasn't a lot of information about how those people, those humans, could start to incorporate pleasure back into their lives in a safe way. And so I decided to move away from that work eventually, and not necessarily related to that. But I wanted to have a more holistic perspective of sexuality and human behavior that did hold space for containing inappropriate or unhealthy behaviors and helping people make sense of and stop anything that was hurting themselves or others. But also then to look at how do they explore a life that really feels exciting and worth living. And that includes pleasurable intimacy with themselves and with other people that does respect everyone's autonomy and boundaries. Yeah. And what I'm hearing is, and this is the kind of the reason that the podcast also exists, is being able to understand these topics from a systemic perspective. When we're talking about sex, sexuality, or communication, or personal development, self-awareness, not just the kind of surface level benefits or outcomes that come, but what happens in a system or an alternate parallel universe where people don't have access or expression for those things. And really recognizing that so many systemic and societal issues can be traced back to these things. Because we think of, oh, sex education, is it important or not? But also, what else does it represent? It represents communication education, respect education, self-awareness. And okay, well, then what happens if we don't have education for those things? How do people develop or not develop as a result? How do relationships between people, again, non-sexual, non-romantic, but dynamics kind of in society overall develop as a result? And you can actually find so many parallels between politics, between so many things can be traced back to these core themes, a lot of which are related to kind of this early education or in our case, in our culture and society, the lack of. And how this self-awareness overall can be completely transformative when people are given the containers. What it seems like is happening is a lot of that work that you were speaking of that those people go through is stuff that didn't happen earlier. Had it happened earlier, there wouldn't have necessarily been perhaps the need for it. But it's these human core things that when mistreated or gone misinformed or uninformed kind of manifest on top of each other and eventually have to be dealt with. But how can we switch to kind of a proactive and preventative rather than a reactive kind of band-aid on a much, much bigger, deeper issue? Exactly. Exactly. Education around pleasure is really preventive medicine for us as individuals it's preventive medicine for our relationships and it's preventive medicine 
for our society and for our cultures. So when we restrict pleasure or deny pleasure, inevitably there will be pockets of entitlement that creep up in response to that. And so that's sort of the context in which I think about how to help people understand how to incorporate pleasure into their lives and why it is really not a luxury, but in fact, a necessity. Yeah, I like that way of putting it and drawing all these threads between bigger issues, right? And I'm, I'll have you talk a little bit more about the operational definition of pleasure in a bit, but even just themes related to our work culture and burnout and all of these things where if we don't think we deserve, right? And again, pulling pleasure out of the sexual context, if we don't think we deserve a break, right? That could be a form of pleasure. If we don't think we deserve vacation or rest or self-care or any of those things, then a lot of these negative consequences in our lives, such as burnout, such as disconnection, can again be traced back to some of these beliefs or false beliefs or limiting beliefs surrounding pleasure. So I'd love to have you talk a little bit about pleasure, this word that many of us have heard so many times, but I'm sure many of us also attach it to different things or have certain associations. And so speaking a bit to, I guess, how you think about it, but also how broadly and the different ways it can be interpreted or the different areas to which you apply and talk about that word and the importance of that feeling or concept. At the start of the episode today, when you mentioned our previous episode, simplicity and complexity and simplicity, pleasure is one of those really beautiful examples of that because it's really abstract in a lot of ways and it is hard to operationalize. But I sort of think about it as an experience of something that feels good. So it's in many ways something that accesses our senses, any one of them or all of them. And it's kind of a somatic experience of something that feels good or enjoyable or euphoric even in the body. We can have mental pleasure too. The things that we think about can be fun and interesting or pleasurable. We might enjoy a fantasy, for example. But I really find that in my own working definition, pleasure is best experienced as a mind-body conversation and awareness. Pleasure can be something that is fleeting and it can be something that has a longer sustained experience. But overall, it's really about enjoying something and finding a sensory experience, something that brings delight or contentment or even a sense of peace. Right. And I think it's helpful to visually imagine this sort of Venn diagram or overlap between these different things of, okay, pleasure, not just as this separate sexual or probably a lot of times maybe on a subconscious level associated almost in a negative. And I think we can get into some of that cultural programming, but okay, it's overlap with joy and calm, peace, contentment, right? All of which are key ingredients to happiness. And something that did just come up for me that I think about and talk about a lot because I love kind of cross-cultural topics and beliefs so much is how differently our culture views and prioritizes, or better said, deprioritizes pleasure. Off the top of my head, I think of in Spanish, the word gozador is an enjoyer. That's what it translates to. And it's a good thing. Like, I'm sure it could be used as somebody who's over the top, but like, oh, that person is an enjoyer. Like, means they know how to have a good time, they know how to enjoy life, allow themselves certain things, like somebody who knows how to give themselves permission to enjoy. And we don't have a word for that. We have like hedonist, which is like the closest thing that I can think of, which is generally negative. Even other cultures 
have always a word for cozy or pleasure or huga, which is the Danish word for like cozy or in winter. It's like a feeling you try and create to help you get through winter, this feeling of coziness. But maybe just off the top of my head, but I can't really think of words and feelings that are positive that we are taught to strive towards. I think there are a lot of words that are, you know, more culture of challenge, culture of discipline, culture of these sorts of things. What are your thoughts on how we view and how our culture communicates about pleasure? In American culture, pleasure is very much policed and it's legislated and it's overcoupled with productivity in this really gross way that perpetuates a scarcity mindset and an entitlement mindset. So because we live in such an aggressively capitalistic culture, so many folks feel like they have to earn their pleasure by how hard they work. And it sets up this deprivational mindset of, I'm not good enough for pleasure until I've proven that I've earned it and I deserve it. And again, that sort of scarcity mindset or deprivational mindset is really productive for capitalism, but it's really corrupting for the human spirit because we are born with the capacity for pleasure. And when that is taken from us, we stop prioritizing pleasure and we become in service of other people's comfort or pleasure in this constant hamster wheel of having to earn enough, be enough, do enough to just rest for a minute, which is pleasure. And it's a dangerous place for a society to live because pleasure is also a form of nurturance. And when we don't feel like we are safe enough to be nurtured or to nurture ourselves or the people around us, then everything becomes a competition and everything becomes a question of who gets the resources, the limited resources of pleasure or everything related with pleasure that exists out in the world. And that creates a lot of us versus them dynamics and that kind of othering perpetuates even less pleasure, more scarcity, and more fear around being able to be the people who are worthy of the good times or the pleasure. And so it's a really insidious, unconscious, for the most part, cultural plague, I'll call it, this way in which we've been conditioned to believe that we don't just have the right to have enough money to live and have land and eat good food and be healthy and laugh and love. European culture is so different with the way that they build in breaks throughout the day for longer lunches and rest and naps and late dinners and celebrations of community and connection. And we have pockets of that here and there in the U.S., but it's definitely not the majority mindset. And again, capitalism loves that, but our human souls and consciousness does not. Yeah, what you said about the relationship between pleasure and productivity and this view that there's a finite amount and that one means the trade-off of the other rather than other cultures which see one pleasure as a key ingredient to productivity or as the higher priority, even if they were a trade-off, right? And challenging. And I see this all the time with clients and in conversations, right? Where how can we actually change our mind, which is very difficult because we've been conditioned to believe that pleasure is conditional, but believing certain thing, ideas, perspective challenges that I bring up to my clients are what if what's best for you is actually what's best for the other person or your business, your company, the growth, those sort of things. And a story that came up for me is this video that I absolutely love. It's in Spanish. It's called El Pescador, but I think it's kind of this based on a fable, The Fisherman. And it tells a story of 
a fisherman who comes in and there's this businessman on the beach and he's watching the fisherman bring in the fish and he goes up and he says, oh, how many hours a day do you spend fishing? What do you catch? He says, oh, I fish for a couple hours and then sell what I need. And then he goes, well, what do you do with the rest of your day? He goes, I go home, I take a nap, hang out with my wife, play with my kids, and then drink some beer with my friends. The businessman goes, I have an MBA from Harvard. And let me tell you, I can help you grow your business. I can help you scale and expand and make tons of money and this. And he starts going through the steps and the sacrifice, right, that will come from it. And eventually all culminating in being able to finally sell your business and then be able to experience pleasure. And the guy says, well, then what happens? And he goes, well, then you can hang out with your wife, hang out with your kids, drink some beers with your friends. And the guy just looks at him as if he's crazy and walks away. (laughs) And I just feel like that really exemplifies the way we're thinking about it. It does. It's such a great story (laughs) and points out how ludicrous our rat race can be sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, we're rat racing to where we already could be if we allowed ourselves to be present, allow ourselves pleasure. We're racing to a place where we could already be and therefore missing out on the possibility of experiencing it. Yeah, so much of why we do that is because we live in such a hyper-individualistic society. And if we had more community, if we had stronger community where we looked out for each other as much as we looked out for ourselves, that creates this stable safety net for people to not feel like they're going to fail if they are not putting in every ounce of energy towards surviving. When people have your back, it's a lot easier to breathe. And in our culture, we're really, really hyper-individualistic, rugged individualism. And that sets us up for constantly needing to be in survival mode all the time, which, again, makes it hard to be present and to engender enough security so that we can take a step back and enjoy and be present. And that's a part of how capitalism is structured. Keep people hungry, keep them wanting, keep them in need of something, whether it's a tangible resource or an identity resource. And either way, that will keep people motivated to stay productive so that they can rest in the comfort of having earned relief and pleasure. I've seen with the pandemic, there have been a lot of, I think, awareness things or walls that have been hit, right? Or limits or kind of realizations or it has served in some ways as a catalyst for certain things and awareness around certain topics that are related to this. What have you seen in terms of shifts in people's mindset around pleasure, presence, or any related themes now compared to pre-pandemic? There's certainly so much consciousness about our systems and the way that we operate as a country today than there was before the pandemic. And there are many reasons for that. But when you think about our whole culture as one system, what I'm seeing is that there's a bit of a bifurcation in the sense that there are some people who are saying, these systems don't support us. I'm returning to a more simple way of being. And I'm going to prioritize presence and pleasure and my nervous system and my loved ones. And if I don't make as much money, that's okay. And then there are other folks who respond to the fear of our democracy collapsing and our economy collapsing by saying, I'm going to run full force into security in a different way. And that looks like making as much money as I can, setting myself up and my loved ones up for this financial success. And I don't know that there's a right or a wrong. And in every system, you're going to have people who will play out the polarities of response to fear. And that's what this is. So again, there's going to be a lot more people who are working in that kind of frenetic, have to make money, have to do the thing, buy the house, get the car, have the title, all the things. And there's nothing wrong with ambition. I'm not trying to shame ambition. But 
for many people, it's such an unconscious process of getting somewhere that when they get there, they realize they've actually been got (laughs) because they've spent so much of their lives rushing to get to this place. And then they get there and it's very hollow, right? So there's going to just be a reverberation between the two extremes. And we're seeing a lot of people wake up to these different systemic pitfalls. And hopefully as a culture, we will find a way to be a bit more integrated and sustainable. But until we get to that point, it will feel really uncomfortable for people for a long time. You mentioned ambition and something I hear from people a lot is this fear of, well, what does it mean if I'm not ambitious? Like I used to be ambitious. Does this mean I'm not ambitious I'm, or I'm giving up on myself, right? And this idea of needing basically like grieving this dream that we could live even though it's not the one we want and we don't want to do the things involved to get there. And perhaps it wouldn't even be as meaningful if we were to get there as we had thought. And as a bit of a perspective challenge, you and I were talking before we started recording how I'm going on a trip next week. I'm taking two and a half weeks off, which I have never done before. And for people in Europe, that's probably really sad. (laughs) But in the U.S., that's probably very common. And... I was joking that my goals are pleasure and presence as part of this trip. And the interesting thing is that this feels very ambitious for me. Taking two and a half weeks off is ambitious, particularly in the United States where people don't take time off. And so I also invite people to really challenge the meanings we're putting behind that or the operational definition we're using in a way that can leverage it to help us make healthy shifts where we challenge what ambition means, right? People in Europe take a month off every summer. Taking a month off in the U.S., that is ambitious. What else is something that you haven't allowed yourself to do that you can reframe rather than being the opposite and moving away from ambition or productivity or whatever the word is, Reframe it as the very embodiment of that. Rest can be the most productive thing you can do in a way. Absolutely. That would be my invitation for people listening in. I love that. And I hope that your ambition allows you to get much rest, much needed rest and play. Thank you. So we talked about culturally how these topics tend to be stifled. And something that you've talked about before is how these aren't things that we need to learn. We actually need to unlearn the things keeping us from it and how pleasure is innate and we are conditioned away from it. Speak a little bit more about that. And then I'm excited to dive into helping people figure out how they can design pleasure practices and more awareness and practice and embodiment of this? The word unlearning is, I think, the most important word to consider because so much of the way that we are conditioned to live is constructed reality. It's programming that we've been taught that has been passed down unconsciously and sometimes consciously throughout the generations. So A lot of folks feel overwhelmed when they hear people say things like that because, and I get that, because it's really sometimes challenging and requires a lot of energy to look at the surreality of the constructed reality that we have right now. (laughs) It's a mouthful. But unlearning is important and highlighting just the word ambition, it's a great place to start in this. When we look at what are people typically associating with that word, they typically associate achievement and high financial reward with the word ambition. But ambition means many things. It means going after something that feels evasive or elusive or hard to get to. And I sort of see ambition today as a way to actually access vitality To me, it feels like a capturing of an essence that lives within us instead of 
something that's external, right? And achievement is great, but what does that even mean, right? What does it mean about you? What did you harvest within you or have in you that you were able to do that? I think that's what we're really seeking with ambition is a quest to know the vitality within ourselves. And it is a privileged thing to be in touch with that because, again, when we don't have enough resources to even live, we don't have the time and space to think about what it means to fully live within ourselves. So in starting to consider what does pleasure mean, I think it's imperative to look at, one, how you're defining different terms, like ambition, for example, and how might you have been conditioned to overcouple ambition with financial success? What is the meaning of that for you? What does it provide you? Why is it so important if that's how you identify ambition, for example? What parts of your identity are really tied to this? How are you trying to feel about yourself that ambition is the vehicle for that? And when we start to ask some of those deeper questions, then we can start to look at what are other paths to that same feeling. So if I want to feel like I am resourceful or resilient or intelligent and getting this promotion helps me feel that way, that's amazing. But if I'm going to hurt myself in the process of trying to get that promotion because I'm working 60 or 80 hours a week, I'm not seeing friends and family, I'm not eating food that is good for my body, then when you get to that promotion, you'll have to do some counterbalancing to reconnect with yourself and to check back in with what pleasure means. Again, it will probably feel hollow after the euphoria of that achievement wears off. So thinking instead about, I want to feel resourceful, resilient, and intelligent, what are other things that you can incorporate into your life that might allow you to feel that way that don't include hurting yourself? but instead include nourishing yourself. Maybe it looks like finding new books to read. That's resourceful and it will help you create intelligence or affirm intelligence inside. It will help you think more critically. And maybe you do that by finding a new park to go read in every day. That's resourceful, right? It's resilient to wake up and go do something different and challenge yourself to step away. So I think we benefit from having kind of a meta conversation with ourselves that can translate into more micro moments of pleasure. And that's a term coined by Tatiana Vogt, micro moments of pleasure. Euphemia Russell calls it micro dosing pleasure. So both concepts are very similar. I love that. Right. But I think that's the way to go. We don't have to look at pleasure as this monumental task or a complete rewrite of our lives sustained pleasure practices are really small. They're granular and they bring us pleasure and joy and something to look forward to even in the moments of working hard. Yeah, I love the term microdosing and because I also love alliteration, my brain kind of went to this triangle of like pleasure, presence and productivity and realizing that we're kind of viewing the flow of which direction it goes kind of as the opposite and oh, how do we actually, rather than, okay, if I'm productive enough, then I can be present and then I can enjoy myself. Rather, if I enjoy myself, it will ground me in my ability to actually be present when I'm enjoying myself. And I will be energized and fueled and be productive in other areas and other moments of my life. When we talk about pleasure I'd love to have you speak a bit to the relationship between non-sexual pleasure and sexual pleasure. It's an interesting thought, right? How are the two connected and what does the interplay look like? I do see them as very interconnected because for some people, pleasure is only accessible during sex. Some people, pleasure is only accessible in their non-sexual lives. But when you can really build more awareness of and cultivation of pleasure in both spaces, they start to really weave together and create a more integrated and holistic living experience because we're not compartmentalized human beings. So if we have a hard time accessing pleasure in one part of our lives, 
it might be that we're actually kind of cut off in other parts of our lives as well, but we have a pseudo-awareness of something pleasurable that might be great and might be lovely and also might be a little deeper if we were open to pleasure in different parts of our lives as well. So I think about pleasure as kind of almost like the roots of the tree. And if you only have roots on one side, it's not going to be a very stable tree. So intentionally cultivating, sitting with, becoming aware of pleasure in many aspects of your life can help you become a more sturdy, grounded, holistic human. Yeah, I think the relationship is fascinating. And if we were to think of it, if there's stagnancy in any one or particularly in both, right? There's, you talked about kind of this flow. And so my brain went to water and if the water is stagnant, but if we get the water moving on one side, eventually those currents will begin to have an effect on the flow on the other side, right? And then eventually things will move. And so as well, if this is something that, yes, it's something innate to us that we're conditioned away from us and something we'll have to practice to uncover and get back in touch with. And so if this is almost a skill in a way, then exercising, right, that muscle is going to strengthen in in whichever side, in whichever area of life. The same thing happens, right, with communication. When you practice communication at home, whether it's with your kids or your partner, that has an effect on your communication at work. Or the joke of learning to ask for what you like in the bedroom is actually going to improve your ability to ask for what you want or need in the boardroom or to your boss, right? It's expression, communication, pleasure. All of these things are gonna have cross-categorical benefits because they are, like you said, connected in a big way. And they become more connected the more that flow gets going. It does. It does. And Sex is such an interesting part of the human experience, and it breaks my heart the way that we have been so conditioned to see sex as something negative or something that is so compartmentalized from the rest of who we are, because that's not a truth. Our relationship with sex tells us a lot about our relationship with just about everything else in life. And your example is so great and so profound in its simplicity When we struggle to advocate for ourselves in other areas of our lives, we are likely going to struggle to advocate in healthy ways sexually and vice versa. When we start to become more aware of pleasure and what our body wants and needs and how it feels when it receives those things or doesn't, that interoceptive or sort of internal body-mind conversation is incredibly invaluable knowledge on how to sort of show up in the best way that we can as human beings on this planet. So I think it's important to recognize the generalizable impacts that happen when we address even just one part of pleasure in our lives. It will carry over. Right. And the more that, you know, we practice and lean in, the more that momentum sort of will will build and the more positive feedback that will get as a result. And I think going back to those beliefs of pleasure being conditional, we were talking about pleasure in general, and that's just so true in both non-sexual and sexual pleasure of beliefs about whether or not we deserve it or have earned it or so many things like that. And then going back to, again, that cycle of self-sabotage and shame, which shows up in, I think, both sexual and not se- non-sexual, right? Like in, in stress eating or in sex or going out or these things where then we have to overcompensate because we've been living in a state of restriction. How do you go about talking to people about building a pleasure practice? Tell me, what is a pleasure practice 
And why is it important and how can people begin to experiment with what that means for them? A pleasure practice is really a commitment to being present with pleasure and acknowledging it and making space for it. So it, as I said before, it can feel really daunting to people who don't know where to start or who have been conditioned to believe that pleasure is shameful or hedonistic or somehow selfish. That's a lot of the language that we hear that conditions us away from pleasure. So it's an interesting manipulation of our identities and our sense of self-worth and the connection that we have spiritually to one another when we grow up with that kind of language. So the first step that I look at is what negative messages might people be sitting with around pleasure and shame? And do they face any real consequences of stepping into pleasure? For example, if they started to set boundaries so they were no longer as exhausted in their lives and they said no to people who were entitled to their time or felt entitled to their time, would those relationships be compromised? And would that result in some kind of dire consequence for the person? That might sound like kind of a big example or very extreme, but it happens in very small microaggressions in families all the time, right? If let's say an adult child says no to their parent about some phone call that they want them to make or some family event that they want them to go to and it doesn't align, saying no might be the catalyst for relational strain or distress. So accessing space for their own pleasure in that moment might come with relational pain. And so I look at kind of what are the real consequences that have been preventing people from living in their pleasure already. And we start to build either a safety plan or just a, a more rigorous awareness of what the options are and resources to sort of handle the big feelings that might come with people having reactions to the changes that you make in your life. So unfortunately, we get comfortable in, in the system of our relationships. So when people make changes, sometimes those relationships do not favor the changes. After that, we really start looking at where do they have the time, space, and bandwidth to begin introducing small moments of sensory experience. A lot of us have been really conditioned away from our own bodies and the sensory experience of our bodies on a day-to-day -day basis. So it takes a little bit of reintroduction and practice to even be aware of what's going on below our eyeballs and what do we even know what's happening in our bodies to know if we like it or don't. So that can look like taking just a few minutes even and sitting with a mint, for example, and taking the moment to mindfully unwrap the mint and smell it and look at it and feel it in your fingers and access the different senses that you have in relation to this mint and be present with the sensation of sucking on the mint, chewing the mint, dissolving the mint, and really like thinking about the tactile experience of that, the smell, the taste, the touch, the sound, all of it, and learning to be more aware of your senses. And then you can start to think about, what do I like? What feels good? Where is the pleasure in this? Some people don't like a mint, so that experiment might leave them with not a lot of pleasure. But maybe the pleasure chocolate. is in, Yeah, chocolate. Or maybe the pleasure is in like being present with your body for a little bit. That can be pleasure in and of itself. It doesn't have to be the stimulus. Right. One thing that came up when you were talking about, just jumping back quickly to that story of the family, and what I heard is that in that case and similar, countless similar cases, is that we are avoiding displeasure, right? Not that's necessarily a word, but we're avoiding the opposite of pleasure. In short term, that's what serves us the most in that moment. But long term, by avoiding displeasure or the stress that comes from saying no and the consequences, that's actually what's keeping us from pleasure and presence long-term and yes. in general in, in our lives. 
And there is just this such a deep connection when you were talking about, right, the mint between pleasure and presence and this flow between them and really them being built one off of the other. Can you have one without the other and how much they are feed off of each other and build up one one and the other? Yeah, I think you can have pleasure without much presence. The question is, will you notice it and will you savor it? Will it nurture you? Will it sustain you? Is it more fleeting? And fleeting pleasure can be okay. There's nothing necessarily wrong or bad about that. But when we rush into something that feels pleasurable, we often don't get the opportunity to savor it as intentionally. And that's part of the pleasure practice that I think is really, it's a humble part of the pleasure because we do sort of think about pleasure as like a goalpost. It's an orgasm. That's the thing. That's the pleasure. Well, orgasms are great. Don't get me wrong. But there's lots of other pleasure that comes from all of the other interactions in a sexual experience. So rushing to get to an orgasm or an ejaculation to me is more productivity. It's a cognitive experience of a benchmark. It's yes, I made it. I did it. This happened. It was great. And that can feel amazing. But imagine how much better it would feel if you felt it and you really sat with the sensation of the orgasm and didn't worry about when you got there and didn't worry about whether or not it was happening. Instead, you were present with every single touch that you and your lover share, every eye gaze, every taste of their skin, every droplet of your sweat together. That kind of a savoring of the sensory experience, first of all, is going to welcome an orgasm much better. But second, it makes the whole thing fantastic that you're doing. And that's the difference between sort of rushing into it and slowing down and savoring it. And for folks who still kind of want to play with what does that mean, there's a really wonderful book called Slow Pleasure that was written by Euphemia Russell. And the book that they wrote is amazing. It's a great reclamation of mind and body presence in the experience of pleasure. So I highly recommend it. I love this idea that of pleasure as a mind-body experience and also presence as a mind-body experience. And you know, that example of savoring every moment for those listening where it's like, oh, I'm busy, you know, I have kids. Yes, that's something you can't do all the time. But it reminded me of an interview I did not that long ago with a couple and they brought up this concept of what they call spoiling sessions. And it's something they do weekly or some, you know, you could do it monthly whenever you have the time or you could adapt it or make them shorter. And it's this moment in time where one person gets to ask for or do or be supported in whatever they want, whether that's sexual, whether that's non-sexual, you know, they want a massage or breakfast in bed, whatever. And one person really focused on receiving because a lot of us, I think, aren't fully open to and willing to receive. So the power in actually allowing yourself to receive. And the other person completely dedicated to giving, which also can require a lot of presence and breed presence and pleasure in its own way. And so that that's something that an example where people can go back and listen to that. Another thing came up when we were talking about this relationship between pleasure and presence and you talked about how it's more sustainable the more presence involved in our pleasure the more it can sustain outside of that moment and we can continue to get value and continue to be nourished by it in a way how for example exercise when we engage in certain types of things in the moment or exercise, it activates our metabolism, which then continues giving us the benefits outside of that moment. And so I earlier referenced pleasure almost and presence as a muscle. And in that same way, when we exercise it and the more we do, the more it will metabolize and continue to 
give us value and feedback and nourish us outside of those moments. Absolutely. The other day, I was on a walk with my sister, and she turned to me and she said, what if there was a pill that you could take and it just would force you to be present in the moment? Like you had no choice but to be fully 100% present in the moment. And she was talking about how badly she wished that existed. And I was like, that would be the most amazing thing ever. Sounds amazing. And I think so many of us crave the ability to fully be present. And we know how important it is and how valuable and impactful when we're able to experience it. And yet we crave it even more because of our inability to fully embody and practice it as much as we would like. It's an interesting idea. I think I would want it to be a time-limited pill (laughs) because we can't be present all the time. It's not sustainable. And our brains check us out for different reasons. When we're driving a car, think about how automatic that is. Or if you don't drive, when you get on the bus or get in an Uber or get on the train or the subway, whatever you take, there's an automation to it. And when you do it so frequently, procedural memory or muscle memory kicks in and we don't have to be present to that process, which allows us to do and think about other things or have the conversation with someone. And so there are degrees of presence that are, I think, important to consider. But yeah, it would be really great if we could have those moments of just absolute focused presence, uninterrupted consciousness. It would be beautiful. Yes, we need the elastic thinking, the creative problem solving that comes with not being present, actually our mind wandering. And it can be a very intense experience. And I know people who are parents who say, I can't be present with my kid all the time, but they actually dedicate certain small five minutes, 15 minutes where they do try and say, how can I be fully present for these short amounts of time? Because again, those metabolize and build and are more impactful, right? Five minutes is equal to, or 15 minutes can be equal to a couple hours of not being fully present. With this pill as a metaphor, what would the key ingredients be in that pill? I think the key ingredients would be safety and comfort in some ways. And by comfort, I think what I really mean is acceptance. Right. When we feel seen, when we feel safe, when we feel valued, then we don't have to fight so hard to be seen safe or to feel valued. And we can actually live in the joy and the pleasure of being seen, being safe and feeling valued. And this brings us back to the conversation about productivity. When we don't have the resources, we don't feel safe. And if we don't have the high achievements, a lot of people don't feel seen. And that's what happens when we overcouple capitalism and productivity and making money with the human experience. We don't know how to feel safe without those things, either in our connections or worthy for connection and certainly without resources. So I would say safety, acceptance, belonging. What would you put in it? I love when I get asked back a question where I'm like, oh my goodness. (laughs) I would put connection, sensory. I find for me, I ground myself in sometimes when I'm really trying to be present in something or anchor myself back, rubbing your fingertips together and feeling the ridges on the finger or listening to your breath. Or I imagine the words that I'm hearing, like some visual or sensory representation that's more of like a tool rather than the key ingredient. I think connection would be really, and I think permission. That comes with safety, yeah. Yeah, giving ourselves permission and allowing ourselves to and desire, right, and commitment and actually like owning, okay, I want to be, like I am supposed to be here because that constant worry for people, I think it's, but what else could I be doing or what else should I be doing so that, mission and commitment to present in in whatever you are. Love that. 
I would also add attunement, really noticing. We have to notice ourselves. We have to attune to ourselves and to other people to build the connection, to feel safe, to even know what we need. Yeah. Oh, there's so many. I'm sure we could go on. Fun and thrill and adventure. There's so many different types of presence, right? There are things that we can call in that kind of force us into that. So then speaking of tools, I always like to leave people with some actionable, practical advice. What are some of the tools or things that we could call in, whether that's to help us be present or to examples of pleasure practices or things we could go about in exploring to help us cultivate our own pleasure practice? Again, beginning to explore pleasure practice starts with beginning to explore your body and just developing that awareness of what's going on in your body. But I think little things can include if the sun is out and warm and you're somebody who likes sun, maybe just noticing what the sun feels like on your skin for a minute while you're walking somewhere. Can you notice the sound of your steps? And does it remind you of any fun rhythms or an interesting moment in life? Can you enjoy the clickety-clack of your shoes on the ground and notice the song that comes with your movement? Maybe it's doing something silly, like dancing to one song a day. I've been watching a couple of creators on TikTok who are so inspiring in this little simple practice of recording themselves dancing for a minute every day to one, one song, whatever song. And they just play it. And it's such a beautiful experiment in pleasure and also the imperfections that are required for pleasure, right? You don't have to have something choreographed. In fact, the choreography of something might strip you of the pleasure. And so that can be a really simple way to get started is to, one, give yourself permission to be silly, goofy, and unscripted and to do dumb things. And two, to embrace the messiness of all of that as part of the pleasure. If you're going to, for example, cook something new and you spill, who cares, <laughs> right? Kind of learn to embrace the messiness of knocking over the can of whatever or getting the sauce on the counter. Like that's part of it. Can you appreciate the contrast of the color of the sauce with the color of your counter? And can you appreciate the texture of the paper towel as you soak it up? and allow that to be a part of the experience. We are messy beings. And so pleasure is often about challenging the idea of perfection as much as it is the enjoyment of senses. I absolutely love that. And the examples, I sometimes really love when the sun is out, just kind of closing your eyes and pointing your, you know, being like a sunflower in a way and just feeling the sun on your face. And the dancing to one song a day, I think that is one I will be jotting down for my vacation. As we get ready to wrap up this amazing conversation about pleasure and presence and how to cultivate a practice around those feelings, states of being, and what is necessary in order to tap into that, I'd love to have you speak to this idea that you introduced that cultivating a pleasure practice is an act of reclamation and can be an act of activism. Yeah. So I, I wish I didn't have to make this a political comment, but unfortunately the personal has become so political that it's really difficult to avoid that. But Pleasure is a form of activism in many ways because of the legislation around who gets to have pleasure and when they get to have it. And when we have a society that is really overcoupled with these hierarchical power structures, the systems that we live in and that govern our existence are in place to basically legitimize the people at the top of these hierarchical power structures as being the people who are quote-unquote deserving of pleasure. And the lie that we've been sold is that if we just work hard enough, we'll get there. But there are many people whose starting line is way behind someone else's 
because of a lot of the systemic barriers that exist in our country to this day and are being implemented in even more rigorous ways currently. When we look at things like reproductive health care and all of the anti-abortion legislation that's coming out across the country, this is not about saving the unborn. It is about policing pleasure and basically saying people with uteruses don't get to decide on their bodies, don't get to decide when they should be sexual and the outcome of that sexuality. It's about restricting pleasure and saying your body is supposed to be in service of this productive task. So you shouldn't have pleasure if you're not participating in this productive task of having a child. That is about funding a source of human beings to fund a system and telling people you don't get to live and be happy and enjoy your pleasure if you're not playing by those rules. The same is true for people who are members of the LGBTQIA community. This is about legislating pleasure. You don't get to live in your lifestyle when bills are passed restricting their rights. They don't get to live, we don't get to live in that lifestyle with the people that we love and in the ways that we experience love and pleasure unless we're participating in this patriarchal, heteronormative, capitalistic, colonialist environment. So anybody who doesn't play by those rules has limits on how and when they can receive pleasure and their autonomy in making that happen. And so I implore anyone right now who's listening to me speak, who's having a really defensive reaction to lean into that defensiveness. Because what that defensiveness may be telling you is that I'm the enemy, I'm the bad guy, because I'm saying something that might be going against your worldview. And I get it, it's really scary. But when we start to unlearn what we thought was reality, we actually get to see these systemic barriers for what they are. And that is mechanisms of control that keep us in a state of deprivation and that keep us hungry for a system that is designed to keep us in our place. And that, all the examples that you gave, right, are also related to the things that we talked about before when it's essentially pleasure as an act of rebellion, whether it's against a system that oppresses certain people, whether that's against a system that prioritizes our performance and output over our own well-being, whether that's rebellion against a system that has restricted us from the very knowledge and empowerment that serves us most and would lead us to be able to live more balanced, healthier, and happier lives, or whether that's a system of internal rebellion against our own limiting and false beliefs and unwillingness to give ourselves permission and all of those narratives that are no longer serving us. And so this people can choose to see this as an act of rebellion in any of those ways that they identify most with and in all of those ways and recognize that embodying this can create, again, going back to the beginning, not just change in that moment, in your life, but at a systemic and societal, cultural level that can be incredibly impactful in terms of the positive ripple effects that it can create. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's an act of activism and an act of rebellion for people who live in bodies. For example, people of color, people who are disabled, people who are not fitting into sort of this white cishet male body that seems to be at the top of, not seems to be, is at the top of this hierarchical structure. For folks who are not in that top group, I don't like that language. I'm not trying to reinforce that language and say that it is the way it should be. But it is an act of rebellion to say, I don't look like that. My body isn't like that. And I still deserve pleasure because you do. We do. And that's why saying I'm going to live into this innate human right of experiencing pleasure 
is a way of reclaiming a status in the world as a worthy human being, regardless of what your identities are, regardless of how much money you have, regardless of the size or shape of your body or color of your skin. We are all deserving of pleasure and worthiness. And so really stepping into that is our way of saying we're not going to participate in anything less than our basic human rights. And that really took me back to what we talked about towards the beginning as well, where we see pleasure as conditional, and that could be conditional to the hierarchy, this status, color, shape, size. Also, again, that that performance, right, of us thinking we have to earn it, whether that's because we haven't achieved enough or made enough money or because of the way we were raised or where we come from or what we look like, but really reclaiming it as something we are capable of and something that we deserve. That's right. Thank you so much for this incredible conversation and for coming back on the podcast and just as always, excited to continue the conversation. Likewise, thank you so much for inviting me back on. It was such a really dimensional, thoughtful, and invigorating conversation today. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime if you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism. We'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the book club newsletter where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.